Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Hello, and welcome to This is Labor in California, a podcast from Ogletree Deacons, where we bring you a monthly overview of traditional labor issues in California, along with how employers may be handling those issues. I'm Maria Anastas, based in our Los Angeles office, and today I'm joined by my colleague, Daniel Adlong in Orange County. Hi, Daniel. How you doing, Maria? I'm doing well. I figured that today we should talk about two separate issues. Both, I think, uh, should be of interest um, to our listeners. And and the first one, I'm really going to let you um, jump in as soon as you're ready. And, and that's the issue of um, professional employees um, organizing and our experience in the recent weeks with our clients who are dealing with you know, more and more issues revolving around professional employees or white collar employees indicating an interest in, in union organizing. I guess I'll, I'll call it the big splash recently is that Teamsters filed a petition for insurance agents. It's over 450 insurance agents. And the petition covers about 77 locations six regions, and it's covering from Merced, California, out to the Oregon border. One of the things that I think is so interesting about this is just the idea that it covers so many locations and that they were able to garner enough support amongst a big group like that to believe that, hey, we can prevail in this election. I think most will know who listen to this podcast that when unions are filing petitions, they traditionally, they need 30% to get an election, but they traditionally come with upwards of 60% showing of interest, meaning people who've signed cards. So we've got to look here and the Teamsters have probably collected at least 300 cards. And one of the things that I think is fascinating about this is that these are professionals. It's a very large group and the organizing is being done via electronic means, via Zoom meetings and other things of that nature. And I've seen petitions online seeking the support. So I think it's just one of those things that's a sign of the times where you can see them organizing professionals. And we also have petitions going around recently for nonprofits that have professionals. And it's just one of those things to show a shift in organizing toward white collar. What's been your experience, Maria, as you've been advising clients on these issues? Well, recently, the the clients that I've been advising um, have contacted me regarding units involving lawyers, um, paralegals, uh, clinical therapists, but all degreed professionals. Um, and as you said, it's, it's it's an interesting development because I think a lot of employers just assume that their white collar or professional workforce, you know, would not get involved with a union organizing campaign or wouldn't have any interest in being associated with a union, um, which is really not the case. Um, but the, our conversations have, have 
at least most recently, revolved around the actual bargaining unit, the composition of the bargaining unit when you're dealing with these professional um, employees and which individuals, when you're talking about a group of lawyers or therapists um, or salespeople, who are the supervisors? So an employer you know, typically has an interest in keeping supervisors out of the voting unit And so, but if you don't have these clearly defined roles and enough facts to support statutory supervisor status, um, the way the NLRB would, would analyze, you know, these, these job descriptions and the actual functions, then you could run into some significant challenges, uh, when, and if a petition is filed. So my recommendation is always to take a look at those issues now in advance of possible organizing and make sure the facts line up so that you'll be able to um, establish clear lines as to which individuals in this voting unit should be excluded um, as statutory supervisors or confidentials. You know, so you, you don't want to wait until you get a petition and then start scrambling to try to figure that stuff out. Um, and you may not have the facts to support your position. I agree with you. I think it's an interesting development. And I I think we're going to see more and more organizing um, among engineers, scientists, sales reps, you know, and, and other professionals. The other thing, just based on a conversation I had with the client this week is the salaried versus hourly issue is, is really not significant when the NLRB evaluates the facts to determine whether a job classification should be included in the voting unit or not. Um, And I think some employers assume that if an individual is salaried, that they're not part of the unit. And as you know, Daniel, uh, the NLRB doesn't really care um, if someone is hourly or salaried. What they're really looking for is, you know, whether or not as far as the supervisory test is concerned, um, it's a completely different test. I'm going to say the one thing I think about the supervisory issue is I've kind of talked to clients about this and talked to colleagues in similar situations. Typically, when I've had these conversations, the, what I'm hearing is this person's clearly a supervisor and they're perceived as a supervisor by their subordinates and by everybody involved. But when we ask the critical questions to show that there'd be a supervisor under the act, there's a lot of facts that are left wanting. And I don't think necessarily that is a fault of the employer or any ways, or that the person isn't truly a supervisor. I just think sometimes because of the act, I think a lot being designed for like industrial America more so than like this white collar worker, it it creates some difficulty establishing the supervisory status of people who I think generally all would consider a supervisor. It's interesting and maddening all at the same time. The other thing that I wanted to talk about is the very recent memo issued by the acting general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, Peter Sung, just in the last week. Um, very critical development in in my view. He made it crystal clear. And by the way, did you have a chance to read the memo? I've read it a couple of times. It's pretty, it's interesting in light of everything that's going on. 
I, I think he's making it pretty clear that he intends to, as he put it, vigorously pursue uh, cases that involve retaliation against protected concerted activities. Um, so uh, an employee that's engaged in, consec- in, in concerted activities. And if you read the memo, which for the listeners who aren't aware of all this, those general counsel mem- memos are available on the NLRB's website, nlrb.gov. What he appears to be signaling, in my view, is that he believes certain forms of conduct uh, should be viewed as inherently concerted. So even if there hasn't been group activity yet, even if employees haven't contemplated group activity, um, that he believes certain forms of conduct should be viewed as inherently concerted. And the call-outs, at least in the memo, were uh, workplace health and safety related to the pandemic and COVID issues, obviously, um, but also, you know, racial discrimination. So those were kind of the, I guess, standouts for me in in reading through that memo, like you, a couple of different times, just to make sure I, I caught the most important point. What do you think would be important to understand if they don't have the time to go through the six or seven pages with all the case sites? Well, when I read it, what stood out to me was this idea of this inherently concerted, because I think when I've ever had anything involving inherently concerted, that's another way of saying it doesn't matter to the region or it doesn't matter to the ALJ that it was only one person. This is inherently concerted. So as I read this, one of the things I thought is, you know, we always talk about concerted activity involving two or more people. But here, I I think he's signaling, say, for example, in California, we have constant revisions and changes to COVID regulations and laws and things of that nature. I think if you have, for example, an employee who makes a complaint, not necessarily about this is what you've done me wrong, but this is what you're doing wrong or how you're failing to comply with a COVID regulation or a safety regulation, I think the board's going to find that to be concerted inherently concerted. And so just the mere fact of saying you're failing to comply with this law, I can see them potentially advancing the position that that's protected activity. The other place I thought, like specifically for us California folks, is to the extent you have anybody who is an independent contractor and they make complaints about independent contractor status and stuff like that, I think they may take the position that's inherently concerted because it goes to the very foundation as to whether or not the act applies to them, just even if it applies to them. And so that was something I I just found a little bit troubling, just this idea that a complaint generally about compliance with the law is going to be potentially inherently concerted. In my mind, the way I saw it, you know, there's there's this board doctrine called the Interborough Doctrine that basically stands for the proposition that if an individual employee complains about something specific to him under a collective bargaining agreement, that is concerted. And I guess I I, I saw like an analog there and wondered if they'll kind of take that same approach to try to provide further protections to employees that they otherwise don't believe they receive under the act currently. Yeah, I think there were basically, I mean, two main messages stemming from the memo. One is that he intends to broaden 
um, the definition of concerted or extend uh, protection to a single employee, even if that employee has not banded together with another employee to raise concerns about wages, benefits, or other terms and conditions of employment. So it's, it's either extend protection to an employee, even if there isn't evidence that they were involved in this activity, that they had involved other employees or were speaking on behalf of other employees, that the concept, as you said, of an inherently coercive. But then the second thing was his call out in various points in the memo about the types of issues. So his historically protected concerted activity usually revolved around terms and conditions of employment. And if you read the memo carefully, he, the general counsel, specifically mentions different types of issues, including, and I'll quote directly from the memo, he said, going forward, employee activity regarding a variety of societal issues, right? So that's not you know, the traditional terms and conditions of employment, he's talking about societal issues. um, And it'll be interesting to see the types of cases that may stem from this memo. That's kind of what I thought would be important to, to share with our listeners. And maybe what we should do is as the cases develop involving protected concerted activity, maybe we should just do an entire episode devoted to the definition of protected concerted activity and the cases that come before the board, you know, this year and and next year involving these societal issues and not the sort of traditional wages and other terms and conditions of employment. So that might be a good topic for um, the coming months. Yeah, I don't disagree at all. I just got to say, you know, where he calls out social justice advocacy, which was striking to me because I have recently had conversations with colleagues where we genuinely questioned if those were even mandatory subjects of bargaining because of the lack of the connection to terms and conditions of employment. But now he's making clear that this could be inherently concerted, which totally changes the kind of dynamic on its head. I agree. All right. Well, I think for today, that's it. Well, I had fun. It's nice talking to you and discussing these things, and I look forward to our next episode. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.